0: The views and opinions expressed by the guests of the Inspira podcast do not necessarily represent the official policy or position of any agency of the United States government or any organization, public or private. One, two, three, four. Welcome to the Inspira podcast, hosted by your girl, me, Erica Mueller-Chen. I'm an international development specialist with over a decade of experience leveraging the amazing power of sport to promote peace and positive social impact. My career has allowed me to live in Europe, Southern Africa, and Latin America. In 2022, I accepted an offer for my dream job in sports diplomacy. And I also became an employee family member to a US diplomat aka and EFM. This podcast is all about inspiration and career advice. Each episode I'll interview an inspirational global change maker working in sport for development, social impact, or the diplomatic service. This series is perfect if you have interest in breaking into one of these sectors or you've already landed that dream role and are keen to learn from thought leaders. Enjoy today's episode and stay inspired.
1: My critique comes down to whenever you hear the, if we play football together, we've created social inclusion. And there's a big assumption that playing football together on a pitch translates directly into a less segregated society. And I think when you're working in the sports for development space, sport is your vehicle, sport is your methodology. It is the platform upon which you're able to do development work. Sport in and of itself is not the development work.
0: Welcome, friends. Today, we are here with David Given Hollander. David is a freelance consultant and strategic advisor specializing in social impact and the intersection between sport and social change. Originally from Ireland. David has collected over 15 years of experience working with organizations ranging from grassroots organizations to international NGOs, from social enterprises to the United Nations, and he supported or directly worked with over 150 social impact projects around the world. During a seven-year tenure at the Swedish Postcode Foundation, David led the foundation's work within the Sport for Social Change sector in both Sweden and globally, managing a funding portfolio totaling over 15 million euros. Welcome, David. Sounds like you've been busy the last few decades. How are you today and where are you today?
1: I'm doing well, thank you. Great to be here. And I'm in New York right now. Um so yeah just moved here about six months ago so testing out the new york lifestyle at the moment just figuring out where i'm going when i leave <laughs> the subway
0: yeah and the first time we talked you were speaking about your kids needing to navigate the streets safely so i'm sure that's a work in progress as well
1: <laughs> oh definitely but now they've just started telling off cars for not driving <laughs> properly so we're fine they're, they're teaching people how to drive in New York. That's a that's a plus.
0: <laughs> Social impact at its finest. So excellent. <laughs> Absolutely. Get them
1: started young. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, uh, before we get into the questions, one thing I like to do because I've called this podcast Inspira. And it's not only about career advice, but I try to weave in some inspiration. As I mentioned, why our podcast guest inspires me so David, you inspire me because you essentially built sport for development in a country where it really didn't exist 10 years ago in Sweden. So I'm really excited to have the excuse to ask you about that experience a little bit later and learn from your insights about what that was even like. So thank you again for for giving me your time and I'm excited to learn about your journey today. <laughs>
1: Thank you. It's a, it's a high honor. Uh, most certainly was not uh, done individually. Uh, we can absolutely talk about that more. That's fantastic.
0: Wonderful, wonderful. Well, to kick things off, perhaps I can ask you to share with us a little bit more about your career journey and perhaps why you decided specifically to focus on sport for social change in your career.
1: to be honest with you I don't think I ever made a conscious choice to make that decision of of focusing on that I kind of fell into this career um I was athletic growing up I was the sporty kid at school I was also good academically but I was I was playing on the sports teams and the career advice I got was hey you're good at sport go do a sports degree that was about the height of it um and that that ended up being at uh, John Moore's University Mm -hmm. in Liverpool where I studied a sport development degree and I guess Straight away, my focus was more on how sport could impact on health uh, and public health, in particular with youth. So that was kind of already when I started there, that that's what I was looking at. But it was in the second year of the program where two of the professors, um, David Haskins and Danny uh, Cullinan, presented an opportunity and a new partnership with UK Sport through the IDEALS program. So it was the International Development Through Excellence and Leadership in Sports program. Um, and basically, this is an opportunity to do a somewhat of an exchange program with three organizations in Namibia. Uh, and I loved everything about it. So I 100% jumped on this, uh, applied and was lucky enough to be one of the eight people that uh, headed uh, off on this adventure and worked with three organizations, Physically Active Youth, Score Namibia and Special Olympics Namibia, three organizations I still have a soft spot for. Um, it was through that I messed Oscar Mwanga, who now is a professor at the University of London and an absolute legend in this space. Um, Went to Namibia, spent eight weeks there and we were working on projects that was doing HIV and AIDS awareness and education through football uh, programming, working with Special Olympics and their programming, physically active youth was helping children with their education through a sports-based programming. Uh, and, and that was just an extension, sort of, and a further development of what i had been doing in the UK focused on health, but opened up to there's so much more that sport can do. Uh, and, and heading back then and finishing my degree and finishing the work that I did, That changed the focus uh, of what I was uh, studying and moved into the master's there where I took a much greater focus on how sport could be used as a vehicle and started seeking out opportunities to learn more how could this be done and not just a a african country context but in a european context in the uk what was happening there um, and learning more about this space Uh, and then was lucky enough that score one of the organizations they had an opportunity in in zambia uh, and asked me if I'd be interested to come down and, and join the team in Zambia. Had no intention of that happening. It it just was an opportunity that got offered to me, and I was like, 100%, yes, I'm doing that. And that's kind of how I fell into this. Now, I've had like quite a path and sense of, and we'll probably talk about this later. i I've gone a little bit disillusioned and been like, now I'm going to go do real development work and. I started working with uh you women and and i started working with uh social enterprises and every single time it's happened i've been in meetings about six months later and be like you know what's a great tool for gender equality <laughs> Sports. so no matter no matter where i've gone i've always headed back in this direction uh, and it, it's been a core part ever since and uh, as much as as much as I can get a disillusion or it can be a critique and I can question some of the things we're talking about, fundamentally, I am a huge believer in the positive role that sport can play in society with the can being a really important part there.
0: Mm. And thinking back to those early experiences in Namibia and Zambia, do you remember your initial thoughts on learning, I mean, were you learning about sport for development and peace or was it essentially like a sports program in certain areas and it happened to have a social impact? Do you remember what you thought or felt about that type of work at the time?
1: It was a 100% learning. Uh, Everything I know about the space comes from those experiences. Um, The academic side gave me a lot. It it, it was invaluable. It was fantastic. The opportunities I got through the university in Liverpool, phenomenal. But i learned what i know through my colleagues at score mm. they were the ones who taught me what it is that i will speak about now they were the ones who mm. have have a community focus who embedded that in terms of how you work that you focus on what the community has what the community needs and let the community lead the work you facilitate that mm. um looking back the ideals program was phenomenal that you can ask questions around how much of an exchange it was i firmly believe that I 100% got way more out of that exchange than maybe the organizations did. But that's where I learned. Like I I spent those years of my career learning uh, from those organizations and from those colleagues that I worked with.
0: Nice. And I, I heard you mention something already today that you mentioned to me the last time we spoke that some of your success or opportunities just came from not saying no, right? Like you're like, Erica, I might've stumbled into this or met the right people at the right time, of course, because of your work and your reputation and just your openness to learning, but really just being open and finding those right people is really important. And and then the other thing I wanna highlight that you just said is really having community-led programming. You know, you or, or myself aren't going into countries or cities and saying, okay, this is the way sport needs to function or these are the problems that we're trying to solve. It's really working side by side in that uh, community led programming because the community knows best. They know if they have a problem, they know what the solution might be. And that's really where the magic happens. So uh, it's wonderful to hear about those early experiences and opportunities that you had while at uni to discover this space and to go on this path. So how did you end up entering the sector after those experiences?
1: I naively at the time, but it was also what was kind of said and what you believed was, I thought that after I'd done a sports development degree, I would be qualified to get sports development manager positions. But the reality is that I didn't have the experience to be able to get those positions. Um, So that opportunity of actually doing facilitation, to be doing, uh, working as a coach, delivering projects, building up that foundational knowledge practically and not just theoretically, doing that through the work that I did with SCORE allowed me then to take the next steps in my career. It also helped me further on in my career because I had that perspective. I understand the challenges that are encountered in these programming. But that was where I kind of got it. so I'm incredibly grateful to the team at SCORE, uh, the team at UK Sport who recommended me. Um, they kind of put me very much so on this journey. Uh, and then absolutely not least, the team at Liverpool, John Moores, who who opened this opportunity in the first place. But it was tough in the beginning to find something. Um, So this opportunity came up, and it was a golden ticket for me, really.
0: Mm. It's interesting to hear you mention that getting that degree should in a sense be a bridge to an opportunity to a job of some sort because you've studied it probably for at least three years if not four maybe even more but you mentioned needing to or or thinking you need to know how to facilitate a workshop and be a sports coach on the ground and have that experience around people to practically implement sport for social change were there any other things or skills that you identified that either you wanted or needed or that other people were expecting of you in order to get jobs
1: that's a really interesting question i don't think there's any kind of expectations of you have to have this skill i think the main one being uh, a willingness to learn was something that that helped um also being open to to going in and and listening to what the community needed to to delivering those sessions being especially as a hyper conscious of the fact that i am a white european male working in zambia um the number of times that i heard people saying as a white european the problem with Zambia and you're sitting there thinking you've been here for six months, like maybe tone down that a little bit, Um, but on going in with a humbleness of, I'm going to learn as much as I'm going to give uh, in this relationship. And I think that, especially when you're doing international work, that is the key, um, that you are aware of that dynamic, that you are humble to the fact that you don't have all of the answers Um, that your academic uh, degree does not necessarily translate into practical knowledge of how to deliver programs in parts of the world that you have zero experience. And I think finding that balance, and as I said, straight out of university, I didn't have that balance. I thought the Mm -hmm. academic degree would help me get a job in the UK. And it was about finding that balance between understanding that the academic degree gave me a theoretical understanding of what was happening but that needed to be matched with practical delivery and practical understanding of how sport and the broader sport for development work how that works in the real world Uh, it doesn't always translate nicely from a textbook into uh, practical delivery and i think combining those two uh, along my career has been where that has been the success story of taking the academic, but making it incredibly practical.
0: Mm. From my experience, that's still talked about as a gap in the sector, that gap or needing to create a bridge, a metaphoric bridge, between research and practice or theory and practice. So it's really cool that you identified that yourself and thought that was a gap that you had as an individual And in reflecting on what you just said, it also makes me think that maybe it was actually a good thing that that degree didn't give you a ticket into the sector because you were able to grow and learn so much more and seek out so much more on the practical level before really diving into the sector. We'll talk a little bit more about your experiences as a funder in a moment, because I'm sure that those experiences you just mentioned have served you really well during that tenure and just that understanding of theory and practice. Uh, But before we do, I'd love to ask you a little bit more about your thoughts on sport for development and maybe why and how you developed what you call a, a critical view of the sector and maybe how sport is positioned or viewed in the development conversation.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, it, it is true. Um, used to say at the, the Postcode Foundation that I was the biggest advocate and critic uh, in the office at the same time for sports for development. And I think fundamentally, I believe the sport can be a positive, um, can have a net positive in society. I believe that it is a phenomenal vehicle that can have a uh, positive impact. And as I said at the beginning as well, the really important word there is Can. Um, because it can also be a vehicle for negative uh, impact in society. And we see it all the time, people who work in the sector, the majority of people, not everyone, but speaking very broadly, they have had themselves positive experiences through sport, which means that they see the positive in sport and in participating in sport. That isn't a given for everyone. There are a lot of people out there who sport and school was caused them to have knots in their stomach because it was a place where they were going to get bullied they were going to get shamed they were going to get to even at the furthest end of the spectrum abused uh, sport has issues around how we have uh, protect our athletes uh, around their mental social physical uh, emotional well-being there is abuse within sports so this idea that sport by default is positive in society is something that we need to be quite conscious and quite aware of that it's not by default it can but like anything else it can also be corrupted and it can be used as something negative Uh, so i think in the sport for development sector if you kind of look at where we were with the millennium development goals sports sports solved everything sport was the solution that was going to save the world It's quite nice to see that as we move into the global goals and into the agenda 2030, we're a lot more selective around where sport can play a role. So I think my critique comes down to whenever you hear the, if we play football together, we've created social inclusion. And there's a big assumption that playing football together on a pitch translates directly into a less segregated society. And I think when you're working in the sports for development space, sport is your vehicle. Sport is your methodology. It is the platform upon which you're able to do development work. Sport in and of itself is not the development work. It is a vehicle that engages people. I think sometimes we're we're moving more and more away from it, thankfully, but there's been a tendency that this idea of, uh, I'm not going to say any names, but there's been a In the past, maybe FIFA has had the idea if we build a football pitch and throw a football onto the pitch, we're going to solve the community's problems. And that's one building block. It requires much, much more to actually address the societal challenges. So, again, fundamentally, huge supporter. Believe in the power of sport, but it can have an impact. It's not actually by default. And I think we need to be conscious of that. I also think as well that we we blur the lines sometimes. So sport we talk about sport, uh, and sport is a broad different number of things. And you have sport for development, you have sport development, you have the business of sport. And every time that we blur the lines between those three, it gets more difficult to see where the actual social impact is coming from. And for organizations that are a business, but their product is sport, that might not always necessarily be in line with an organization who's their services are looking to create social change. Their vehicle is sport. And I think we need to be very aware as well of like just this broad spectrum of I do sport when in reality, do you do sport development? Do you do sport for development? Do you do sport business? And I think we need to just be very clear on what area of work we're doing.
0: I'm wondering... A little bit more how you approach your work or maybe even your conversations about sport for social impact knowing that you do have that view and i agree with your view by the way that sport isn't always good how does that influence the conversations that you have? Because I'm thinking about my own experiences where there's some people who know nothing about sport for development, you know, the majority of the world. And so I'm like, yeah, it's awesome. It's this, it's that. It has all this potential. And then with people like yourself or people who know a little bit more, you know, I may bring forth those critical viewpoints. Or, okay, we, ha- we should do this before we do that. Or let's ask these questions before we do that. How has that kind of influence the way that you either approach your work or your conversations about the potential of sport?
1: So if I'm speaking to someone who doesn't know about this space, I don't actually necessarily lead off with the sport element. I, I work in the not-for-profit sector. I work with social impact organizations. I work with organizations that work with gender equality, work with environmentalism, the work with youth development, uh, youth unemployment issues what makes them unique is that they do this through sport so people understand the first part they're used to the charitable sector the non-profits the ngo so that part they understand what makes it then interesting is that you say how you do that through sport then they're like well how does that work instead of going well you work your sport you work for sport organization i think That again, in the sector, we do ourselves such a discredit by defining ourselves as sports organizations, because these organizations are so much more than that. They're not sports organizations. Sport is the methodology. And in no other type of organization would we define them by the methodology. We define them by the social outcomes that they're trying to create. But in the sports for development sector, we define ourselves by the methodology. And I think comes down to the name. And this is a conversation that's been going on way before my time, but even just the fact that sport comes first and sport for development. If we talk about more being social change through sport or development through sport, it becomes very clear what the role of sport is in that dynamic. And I think that for me is how I talk about the sector when I'm speaking to people. It's a development sector. It does development work. It has social outcomes it does it through sport and that's what makes it quite unique because it engages people in a way that other things don't you of course then have sports clubs their product is sport and I think there you're moving into how do we have as a body sport that has a positive impact that is inclusive and moves towards this good model of sport Um, that's different to sport for development because having good sport that is around it being open to everyone, it being fully inclusive, it respecting uh, human rights at all levels, uh, it being having a net negative impact on the environment around itself, but still the focus is on the sport. Sport for development flips it and has the development issues as its focus with sport merely being a vehicle. And I think those two are different. They they interline or they interconnect and they, they line against up, up against each other, but they're not one and the same thing.
0: It's so interesting to think about how sport does come first in the phrasing and that it is just a vehicle to a greater goal. So for anyone listening, yeah, rewind it a few minutes because I really like what you just said, David. And I'm going to rewind it myself because I don't think I've given that enough thought uh, just about how the terminology was set up and maybe some of the limitations of that terminology when we're thinking about greater understanding in the world about the sector. Quick break here to highlight what I consider to be a fabulous resource that I've created for any listeners out there interested in learning more about the sport for development and peace sector. You've come to the right place. In addition to Inspira podcast episodes that you can listen to, I've created a written resource that you can read, which currently has over 90 items I've curated from my own experience and vetted with other experts in the field. These include databases to find award winning organizations, links to reports, books, and research, as well as recommended newsletters and recorded webinars, all Sport4Dev related. I encourage you to have a look. You can find this resource by visiting my link tree, listed in each episode's show notes, then clicking Erica's Global Resource Hub. That's right, Erica's Global Resource Hub. If you like what you read and what you hear, I'd love it if you could give Inspira a five-star review on your chosen podcast platform and write a kind review. That would be so energizing for me and it would help Inspira reach more ears. Thanks and back to the show. Let's talk about Sweden. I know that you spent over seven years of your career there, specifically with the Swedish Postcode Foundation, and so I'd love to know more about how you got your foot in the door there at the Postcode Foundation, the scope of some of your work. I know earlier in the conversation, I hinted that you built with other people and with an amazing team, hopefully, this existence of sport for development in Sweden which didn't exist 10 years ago and just your overall experience and what it looked like there.
1: Yeah so when I arrived in Sweden it was about 11 years ago that I first moved to Sweden Um, and I immediately started looking for okay what what's the kind of sport for development movement here. Um, I spent obviously a lot of time in the UK where it is even under that period, 11 years ago, was quite developed. I mean, you had UK sport doing a lot of work. You had organizations working nationally and working locally. uh, And I started looking, and honestly, there was maybe a handful of organizations in Sweden that you could define as kind of out-and-right sport for development organizations at that time. Clubs were doing some stuff. The the federations were doing some stuff. But it wasn't wasn't a booming uh, movement in, in the country. There was also the challenge that I couldn't speak the language either. So I might be saying all that under the fact that I couldn't Google search properly or I <laughs> couldn't get into those networks because I couldn't speak a lick of the language. Um, but gradually started getting more and more involved in different things. Um, first point of contact with was with uh, Cruyff Institute, uh, who were partnering up with UNOSDP at the time um, and leading the youth leadership uh Uh, camps in in Stockholm. So supported that and and kind of the Cruyff Institute's development of a a power sport foundation. And then in 2015, the Swedish Postcode lottery wanted to start a sport foundation. Um, And the, the focus of the foundation was to invest in sport projects that had a social outcome. So at that point, I was maybe four five years into my time, four years into my time at Sweden. So I was a little bit better at the language. Um, managed to be uh, <laughs> recruited. Uh, I managed to get through the interview in Swedish. <laughs> I think is a better way to put it. i would really prepared answers. Um, Thanks then. They, they, you could say they maybe took a, a risk, given the fact that I wasn't completely fluent. So I am grateful for the fact that I got that position. I think the experience I had coming from the international perspective and, and the work that I'd done um, contributed and was perfectly aligned with what it is that they wanted to do with that foundation. So came in and started immediately building up their portfolio. And even in that short period of time of four or five years, uh, you could see an increase in the number of organizations that were working in this space. And 2015 was also the period of the quote unquote, the refugee crisis in Europe. Uh, So that meant that sports organizations, as sport organizations do immediately went, well, how can I help? Uh, And there was a a massive increase in the number of projects that were aimed at creating an inclusive society for refugees coming to, to Sweden. So that also was a phase where there was a bit of growth in this movement in Sweden as well, coupled with the funding that came from the lottery, from the foundation and other donors as well. Um, and we kind of like just kept building it along. And then about a year later after starting, it got merged into the Postcode Foundation, which for me was always a positive thing from a branding perspective Uh, going back again to the challenge of the sport for development space there's a bit of a branding issue there with the whole definition and the organizations in that space they've been talking about sport for development have been sport for development organizations they've been people with sport in their title so when the postcode foundation took over started this pillar of work It gave it added value and added strength because the Postcode Foundation is not a sports organization. It's not a historical, a sports donor. So we were able to start developing out a position for the organization to be like, we are a development organization that funds social impact. And we see the value of what it is that sports brings to the table uh, and start to fund it. But even as we moved into sort of 2018, 2019, and now we're heading into like this new period, it was still a sector that was kind of, in Sweden, growing, but not really coordinated. And I think when the pandemic hit, that's when we saw the effect of that. You had organizations, umbrella organizations, who were speaking to the need of the sports, traditional sport development uh, pyramid. You had organizations who were speaking to the needs of civil society. But then you have these new sort of sport for development organizations in Sweden that just didn't have a voice, but they were being impacted the same way as those other two groups as a result of the pandemic. And that kind of built into the strategy that we developed at the foundation. Um, so in 2019, we wrote a strategy, we wrote outward, outwardly wrote in the strategy. Our aim is to create a sports for sports for social change sector in Sweden. Um, we did a mapping, we partnered with some fantastic organizations. Um, we've held conferences, we brought together a network of organizations that is upward of 50 organizations on the contact list now. And most recently now, we had a workshop earlier in the year where we got really concrete and really detailed on, okay, what does the future of this movement look like? And what does the future of the sector look like? And we're now creating a, board, a steering board um, with the aim long term to create an umbrella organization that kind of represents this movement in Sweden so that we can, when the next uh, crisis hits, there's a unified, single voice that can speak to the needs of the sector and represent it. increased funding streams, increased policy development that represents this kind of new movement in Sweden, which right now is kind of lost between two, uh, two structures.
0: I'm wondering if you think that the work you and your team did in Sweden of building the sector or saying, okay, that's the goal. Let's build sport for development here. Do you think that's applicable or useful to other countries or regions? Or do you think that it was so specific to Sweden that it's not one size fits all?
1: I've very rarely think that anything is one size fits all I think there was unique possibilities and and ingredients in Sweden that made it possible there Um, but to be honest with you a lot of the work that we did it mirrors the work that was done in the UK with the development of the Sport for Development Coalition Mm -hmm. Uh, and Comic Relief played a very central role of that in the beginning and then over time it developed into what it is today and I think the the process of sort of building a network, building a coalition, creating that unified voice, that to an extent is universal. The challenges that each country is gonna be facing is different. So it's about taking that model, taking that structure and making it applicable to whatever challenges you're facing. Uh, In the Swedish context, it was that twofold, really. I mean, you have a growing sector that was a little bit disjointed. And then when the pandemic hit, There was no one who really lobbied for funding to that specific type of organization. Civil society looked at them and went, well, you're a sports organization, so the sport federation will look after you. The sport federation looked at them and went, well, there's no competition in what you do. So you're a civil society organization, so they'll look after you. And they kind of just got stuck there in the middle. Mm. Um, And I think So the process of bringing the people around a table together, uh, getting them in the room, finding that common pain points of what is happening and developing an idea of, okay, how can we address this? How can we move this forward? That process, to an extent, can be applicable regardless. But then the issues, the topics, the content that that structure is filled with, that will be different depending on location.
0: I'd love to know more about what lessons you learned during your time at the Swedish Postcode Foundation. Specifically, I'm thinking that it would have been quite interesting and challenging to wear the funder or the donor hat in terms of the conversations or the interactions you're having with people or organizations. and likely the times you have to say no or set expectations in, in maybe an interesting way and the second piece I'm curious about in addition to the funder hat is building coalitions what did you learn about that engaging with the government engaging with other bodies uh, I'm just curious on, on your reflections
1: yeah um, being a being a funder being a donor that was never a position that I thought I'd find myself in um, it's not It's not one that I chased. Uh, It's not one that I was like, okay, one day I'm going to be a donor. Having said that, it was hugely valuable to me because I think when I was on the other side of the relationship, when I was writing applications, when I was delivering projects that were funded, I was 21, 22. I also had a little bit of like, you just don't know, like, you don't know what you're doing. Like, let me get on this. Why do I have to write this report? This is so uninteresting. I don't want to write this report. (laughs) Having flipped it and worn the kind of funder hat, one thing that was, one thing first of all i always say is i mean the swedish postcode foundation in one year received anywhere between 700 and 1200 applications um of those we maybe had a budget to be able to approve 10 percent of those or maybe even less than 10 percent so that put us in a position where we were saying no to projects even though they were good projects. there was nothing wrong with the projects. it's just funders there's this tendency the funders have an endless pot of funding that they're able to distribute that never take comes to an end but there are competing uh, competition and it is difficult as a funder to say no to those projects when you kind of know this is a good project, but if we had different priorities, we would fund it. These are the priorities we have. So I think learning that part of it has been, has been interesting is just as a straight off the bat, but at the same time with 700 to 1200 applications, the amount of new ideas you read about, the amount of like, applications you read and the knowledge that you're able to consume as a result of reading those applications it's immense and at any given point during the last seven years i've had a portfolio of maybe 25 organizations that i've worked with um so again working with those 25 organizations learning how they work the challenges they face and and having that close relationship to them has been a huge learning experience Um, difficult when you work in a very niche area of sport for development, because there's a lot of like relationships. So as you said about expectations, and as much as the foundation funded, it, it wasn't a huge part of funding that the foundation had for this space. It was maybe the smallest part of funding that we had for our priority areas. So managing that expectation of what we were able to fund, contra how many organizations that were applying was a constant, a uh, constant challenge. The other thing is funders have a responsibility as well. I wonder how my former employees will feel about this, but there's a responsibility as well. As a funder, you have your objectives. You have your, there's someone who you have to report to. You have your structures, you have your procedures, and you have your, all of these things that you have to go through. That can't outweigh the focus on community development driven by communities. It can't be a top-down driven. It can't be donors putting in, we want these indicators in your program. It needs to be more driven by the organization with a flexible structure so that they're able to apply for funding that doesn't cause organizational drift. It can't be donor funded. And I think I've had the absolute honor to work with women Win, who have launched the On-Side Fund, who the entire premise is and democratizing philanthropy and giving decision-making power back to local communities now that requires a incredible amount of trust between every partner um, close relationship close collaboration continuous dialogue and i think with the sports for development organizations we managed to sort of strike that balance as well between staying true to our our sort of needs but also being flexible enough that this is this is going to be a flexible relationship. And the Postcode Foundation, honestly speaking, they're really good in that relationship management. They are an incredible, flexible organization. They do recognize that a project plan that is written in 2001 does not mirror reality in 2024. So there is scope to kind of adjust as we go along. I know that there's other donors that are very much, once you write it, you've written it, and this is what you have to stay to. And I think that model of funding needs to be moved away from more and more. Um, So seven years, there's a huge amount of learnings. At the same time, I left thinking, what do I actually know at this (laughs) point? (laughs) Mm. And in terms of the kind of building the coalition, we kind of talked about that earlier. Um, We have done a lot of internal work. So when you talk about engaging external partners, we haven't done that uh, to the extent that we would like to. It has been about building that common platform for the organizations that are part of this movement to get on board as a coalition or a network. What is it that we do? How do we want to communicate? And what is the issues that we want to challenge? uh, challenge? I think that preparation work is vital for when you then go out externally and start speaking about it. Because if you haven't actually defined what your message is, If you're not clear, if you're not concrete, when you then go for your ask, it's going to make it a lot more difficult for you to get what it is you're asking for because it's not going to be clear. So I think it's taken a lot longer than I think everyone in the process had hoped it would get to this point. Um, But I think in the long term, the last year, year and a half that we spent like kind of building that, having those conversations, developing that common, common understanding of where we want to go, in the long term, I'm saying this, but... I I think, I hope (laughs) it will be, it will be a benefit in the long term.
0: What is next for you, David? And uh, perhaps I can invite you to speak a little bit more about the work you're doing with United nations and sport for one humanity, anything that you might be excited about moving forward.
1: So yeah, the, the UN um, sport for one humanity project kicked off yesterday. Which is probably in a number of months ago when this is released, <laughs> but as we're recording, it sure, was sure. yesterday. Um, so kicked off at the beginning of December, we had our first training with the uh, the organizations that are part of that. Um, so that's going to continue for the next couple of months. We're going to be delivering workshops on everything from program design to communications and advocacy to revenue and income generation. Um, so that's a really interesting project, really cool. I'm looking forward to that. Um, the work with uh, within Sweden. Uh, to continue with the, the postcode and the work that started there and continue to develop out this this network or coalition or whatever you want to call it. Um, that's going to continue into 2023. And that is going to be a really exciting process. I think... Hopefully by the end of the year, we have a really solid structure, um, potentially moving towards a umbrella organization that represents the sector in Sweden. So it's a really exciting time. There's gonna be a report released um, soon as part of a project that was done together with Laurier. So there's a lot of cool things happening in that space as well. Um, And then I've got a couple of other conversations with with organizations around supporting them some work. As you said at the beginning, I'm I'm now working as a a freelance consultant. so there's a couple of I don't think I can talk about them yet because there's nothing finalized, but hopefully by the time this is released, mm-hmm. those projects are up <laughs> and running. Um and yeah, just just kind of continuing along those lines. Um, and also learning how sports for development and this kind of sports based youth development mm-hmm. is as much as it's talked about uh, in the US, how that kind of works, like yeah. what that looks like. That's and big again, in New it's York, kinda, I feel. it's a big one in New York. Yeah, I've got that feeling. Um Walking around the city when I'm not trying to stop my kids getting run over <laughs> by cars, I get the feel I get those strong vibes with <laughs> the sport for development sector here. Um, but yeah, it's continuing out along along those ways. And I, I guess moving here, similar process to where it was when I moved to Zambia, similar process when I moved to Sweden. It's a lot about just like learning how does this work here? Who are the people? And trying to to build out those contacts and start to learn new things again. But um, so yeah, a couple of exciting things. It's going to be fun.
0: Mm. Good. Well, I'm looking forward to following your work and you. And uh, before we transition into some fun questions, are there any other career experiences or things that you wanted to share?
1: I think uh, when you start looking at the sport for development space, you can start taking a very international perspective. You have just Again, just yesterday, the UN released another resolution on the use of sport as sustainable development, reaffirming its commitment. And, and you can start looking at the Laureate Sport for Good, which is a global network with common goals, a global network. And it can start to seem very international. Like, how do I enter this big international movement of sports for development? And the reality of it is it's incredibly local. Everything that's done within sports for development is driven by local projects and local engagement. So... Broadly speaking, nine times out of 10, wherever you are in the world, there will be a sports club or an organization locally who is doing this kind of work that you are able to engage with and start learning from. And and that's your entry point into the sector is is the grassroots organizations, the community level activities that are taking place around you, learning how it's uh, used. And then you can start building out the other parts of looking like, okay, well, this is how it works in my community, but how does I, I live in an urban community. How does it look in a rural community? And you start building those pieces and, and those building blocks, and then you start moving into the international, you start moving into that same, but all of this is very much rooted in local community action. And... sure if you look around, you will find an organization that is doing this, that is one, looking for people to get engaged and help out uh, like any nonprofit, and and two, you'll be able to learn so much from. So I think that's where I would start. That would be my piece of advice.
0: Now that we know more about our guest's career journey, the rest of our conversation will allow us to have some fun and get to know our guest on a personal level through some rapid-fire questions. We'll then start to wrap up with pointed questions focused on advice and how our listeners can transform interest into action. Enjoy the rest of the conversation. David, how would your friends or your family describe you?
1: non-stop energy uh just happy-go-lucky a bit of a clown but of an idiot um doesn't take himself too seriously even if it sounded a little bit like this in the podcast (laughs) i don't
0: who is your sports team
1: oh so i grew up a manchester united fan um and if i had to say a team it would it would probably have to be manchester united
0: In which city do you feel most alive?
1: I'm in a honeymoon period right now, so I'm going to say New York. I mean, I've lived in in Stockholm for a number of years, and I always do this comparison of where in Stockholm, it feels like there's a stress in New York based on my very uh, early impressions. There's a temple here um, and so much happening here. If it's a city, it's here. If it's a small, non-city area, I've got to go for um, the cabin that we own in the north of Sweden, Mm -hmm. where it's a small village. It's phenomenal. It's by the mountains. um, There's a lake outside. I'm painting this really nice photo and it is and i think when you talk about where do i feel most alive anywhere in the world it's it's there um i go there on a regular basis just to disappear from the rest of the world to recharge um, so i love that place
0: what is your favorite food
1: pizza pizza
0: you're in the right place
1: <laughs> Ma- margarita pizza <laughs> Simple, nice simple, really basic. Don't, don't have to be fancy. If you're feeling really hungry, fry a few eggs, put that on top, which I know Italians <laughs> listening are going to be like, What did he just say?
0: <laughs> That's worse than pineapple, David. Oh exactly.
1: my gosh. <laughs> That's just like, I'm never going to be able to work or live in Italy right now. The migration office has heard this and they're like, Never allow him in.
0: Okay. What about music? Do you have any favorite artists, bands?
1: Growing up, I. I listen to a lot of country music. Uh, so I love Garth Brooks. Nice. Um, absolutely love that. Anything kind of country. There's a playlist on Spotify, coffee shop, country house music. Love it. Also listened to a lot of Bon Jovi growing up. So all the kind of 80s, 90s Bon Jovi, like was all over that oh, nice, to the nice. point that I I went into a hairdresser's and asked if they could give me the John Bon Jovi hairstyle. Um the things, the things you regret with your, your style choices. <laughs> Whether they do a good job
0: or not, I'm not sure I want to see that photo.
1: <laughs> no, no, nobody nobody does. It was a tough period. It was a tough period in life.
0: Do you have a best sports memory?
1: Yeah, I mean, playing playing hockey. So I played field hockey growing up um, in Riffaux, and we... When I, we won a junior competition, which was phenomenal, but then I guess one of the ones that always come back was the year that the men's first team uh, that we were playing on that we won promotion. Um, there's we'll not talk about how the next season went when we actually played in the top league. That's a completely different story. but for, for <laughs> That's that season
0: resilience, yeah no, that, sure.
1: that was the resilience. that was the character building <laughs> exactly. season. The season job exactly. <laughs> The season before was the joyous and I think uh, that was such a cool memory.
0: You've already mentioned some really nice tips about go local. There is global, but local is first and also listening to the community, having a growth mindset, being open, all of those really, really nice and helpful things to hear. And what advice might you give to folks interested in breaking into sport for development and peace?
1: not being too overly defined and stuck in what it is you think you will enter the sector doing and being very flexible and very open to whatever opportunities are put before you. Um, I think you talked about the fact that I I didn't say no. We talked about that in the uh, call earlier. And I think as much as that's not a healthy, (laughs) a healthy (laughs) attribute to have, especially as you move into the world as a consultant, um, Early on, I think the fact that I was so open to just whatever possibilities came up meant that I was able to enter in different spaces and different different entry points. And I think that would be the one... I made that mistake coming out of university. I thought there was a clear path in front of me. Um, and I think if you get too stru- stuck at the start of your career and what your career path is going to look like, then you close yourself to loads of opportunities. So I think just being open to, to what presents itself Um, reach out to people. I think don't be scared. There's almost an intimidation element of like, who am I? What can I bring? You you can bring you. Uh, You can bring a new perspective. You can bring an extra set of hands to help out.
0: Are there any resources that you're aware of or maybe that you've produced that you'd recommend people look up to learn more about the sector?
1: So I think the, I mean, you have, sport and dev uh, as a resource for the international stage you have um, they together with Commonwealth Secretariat and the Australian government develop the online course on sport and sustainable development which is available on future learn um, there's no affiliate links. So I'm not getting paid to promote that course. It's just a great course. GIZ have similar uh, learning labs that you can learn about this space. Sustainabilityreport.com is very much focused on sport and environmentalism and sustainability. So I think those are and, and then also signing up to the, the networks, like their newsletters for be it Laurier's, Beyond Sport, Women Win, Common Goal, uh, Skadistan to get those newsletters into your inbox to start learning, okay, what are people doing? What's happening out there? Uh, And kind of consuming that information. Um, I think then if you want to go down the path of of like full on academic um, degrees, I got to give a shout out to John Moores University at Liverpool, top university, awesome professors, can't recommend it enough. Oscar Mwanga is at the University of London. So just by association, that gets a recommendation and they have a course. And I think more and more universities are actually maybe not a full-on degree in this space, but they will have modules within a degree. Uh, So if you want to go down that path, there are options as well. But a lot of these free tools from GIZ, Sport and Dev, these these are places that you can start learning without having to pay for a university degree. And I think they're more than enough as an entry point
0: how can the audience support you or your work moving forward
1: so as i said working now as a consultant so if you're looking for um someone in this space you need some help with like sorry organizational development strategic design the program design even fundraising communications um get, get in touch and honestly just get in touch anyway um <laughs> we'll see if this broadcast was a good advertisement for, <laughs> for my consultant To be perfectly honest, get in touch. Um, Love to meet new people in this space. It's one of the great things about this, this sport for development space is that people are incredible. Um, The people working here, it is a job, but it is also a passion. Uh, There's a reason that people spend so much time in this space. And the people that I have met through conferences, through work, through projects supported, through anything, they're just incredible people um so just get in touch
0: my final question is who or what inspires you and if you feel so inspired i'd love to hear you answer in swedish
1: my kids and my wife inspire me um my kids and they're incredible two incredible individuals they're they're five and three and we moved from sweden to to new york and from day one, I've never seen a positive mentality around the moon. They were so excited. We got here. They were like, we love this place. They, they I look at them and I'm just like, I need to live life like you do. Um, my wife, incredible human being. Um, the work that she does, she she works for the UN, the work that she does is just immense, uh, constantly impressed and inspired by what she does. So I think I have inspiration, thankfully, I'm really lucky, <laughs> in the three people that I share a living room with. Mm. Basically what I said was, it's been really nice to speak to you and I really look forward to when we actually get to meet in real life I and not it. just the real screen. Um, but this has been awesome. i really enjoyed this.
0: Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the Inspira podcast with Erica Mueller-Chen. I really hope you enjoyed the episode and found it useful. Be sure to check out the show notes for links and resources. Specifically, my link tree is there with tons of awesome information. Feel inspired to take action today? I've got three action steps you can take right now because you know your girl likes calls to action and the number three. So here goes. Number one, follow the podcast on your chosen podcast platform. Number two, share your feedback with me through the listener survey listed on that link tree. And number three, tell just one friend about this podcast so they can give it a listen too. And do I have any overachievers out there? I've got a bonus action step, which is to consider supporting me and making sure this passion project prospers. So number four, follow the link to buy me a coffee. That would be pretty amazing. Until next time, stay inspired.